1: That's wise. W i s e. dot com. Wise. dot com. Hello and
0: welcome to the long form podcast. I'm here with my co-found, my my co. <laughs> I don't. We're, we're co's. <laughs> Max Linsky. Evan. I don't know where Evan is, but he couldn't be here. Evans on. Uh, Evans on vacation. You need to take vacation during times like this, even if you can't really go anywhere. You need to take vacation my dear dear co who is uh who is on the show this week Uh, i got to talk to vincent cunningham who is technically one of the theater critics for the new yorker but uh writes a lot about uh culture of all kinds uh he's written some great profiles i think i became uh aware of him as a writer um, from a profile he did of the comedian tracy morgan i want to say like two years ago which I think was on our best of the year list. Uh, and I followed uh, his writing ever since and really enjoy it. And I also really enjoyed this conversation. Excellent. I'm, uh, I'm a big Cunningham fan. I'm glad you got him on the show, man. As always, the show is brought to you by MailChimp. They make this show possible. They also make email newsletters possible for some of the biggest and best businesses in America. Make yours one too. Thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Vincent Cunningham. Welcome, Vincent Cunningham. Thank you for having
2: me, Aaron. This is great.
0: Your narrative on the internet picks up where you're working at the Obama White House, and uh-huh. then at some point after that, you started working at the New Yorker. You're technically the theater critic there, right? I'm one of two theater critics. What, one of two theater critics. So how did you end up working at the Obama White House uh, in the first place?
2: Sure. It uh, it was this kind of a strange road. So... I left college at Middlebury College, uh, sort of in the middle of my time there. I had just had a kid in what should have been my junior year, and I came home sort of uh, very dazed and confused and not knowing exactly what to do, so I guess I'm about 20, about to be 21 at this time. So I started working as a tutor for a kid, and I tutored this kid in English and math, and I guess I did a good job with him. Like, we got along really well, this kid, uh, Chad. Wonderful guy. And his stepmother had known Barack Obama since he was running for the state Senate or whatever in Chicago. So they were looking for somebody to be an assistant in their fundraising office in New York. And just because this kid's parents liked me, they were like, hey, we know a competent young person. Um I'm assuming that they're also the competent competent young black person. I'm sure they were like looking for somebody uh, to fit that description as well. Um and they just sort of handed my name over so I like took a call. I, I remember that I was in a borders that does not exist anymore on 34th Street right next to Madison Square Garden. Took this interview and like the next week I was working on a presidential campaign. It was one of the stranger things that has ever happened to me. And this was like a month after he announced his candidacy to be president in early 2007.
0: So let's rewind to the portion of your Middlebury education before you had a child. Um, Did you have writerly ambitions during that part of your life?
2: Vaguely wanted to write. And I wasn't exactly sure what. Like a lot of people in, in high school, I wanted to be a poet. And I wrote a lot of, I mean, just metric tons of bad poetry. I grew up singing in church. My dad was a musician, so singing was a part of my life, and that was a lot of my sort of early aesthetic experience was around music. But I did want to write, and I wasn't sure exactly how. So I continued to write poems in college, but I also acted. So I was kind of engaged in the arts, but not exactly sure how I would end up
0: expressing all of that. Taking steps to, like, publishing work.
2: Well, after the... Obama campaign. I mean, whatever. I had some poems in the college literary magazine or whatever, right? Like, um, I'm not sure if that counts for your. You don't purposes. want
0: to mention things like that in the show because our intern will track them down and link to them <laughs> if you do.
2: <laughs> well, I. Uh, good luck. I hope you do not find them. Um, I, after working on the Obama campaign, went on to work at the Democratic National Committee in Washington and at the White House. And at some point, having been less than great at all of these jobs. I was not at all a star in this milieu. I came back to New York thinking that I would sort of work my way toward writing in some way. So I was a writer, a speech writer at the New York City Housing Authority, the agency that runs all the public housing in New York. So I was writing in that way. But then I also started to do really small freelance things, some of which were um, play reviews at, you know, 400 words at a time, very small pieces in the small paper uh, here in Brooklyn called uh, The Brooklyn Paper. And then not long after that, I started doing very short profiles at, um people know Nylon Magazine. There used to be a Nylon Guys magazine. And I would do, I did some like 600 word profiles of people in that, and even shorter book reviews. So those are some of my first attempts at
0: publication. When You were writing speeches at the New York Housing Authority. I don't think I've actually talked to, maybe John Favreau may have talked about it, but I don't think we've ever (laughs) talked about speech writing on the show. So what do you get when you're supposed to write a speech and how much writing uh, latitude do you get um, in writing (laughs) a a speech for the Housing Authority?
2: Well, you start out with very many pretensions that you're going to like Transform the yeah. sound of public housing <laughs> or whatever, you know? like I, yeah, it's gonna rip. But uh, after a while, it, you know, it, it is a yeah. very constrained art form. And of course, the first constraint is how the person sounds, right? So you like listen to them and listen mm-hmm. to things that they've said and try to work your way into that. So in that way, it is imaginative. But at the time when I worked at the New York City Housing Authority, um, not long after I got there, was Hurricane Sandy. So a lot of the things that I was writing were requests of varying levels of desperation, like pleas uh, for um, money from the city council to sort of rehabilitate public housing that had been damaged in the storm. People's lights were off, people's heat was off, all these kinds of terrible things. So often what would happen is that you would be invited to a meeting of people who had like real jobs, right? the head of the agency who you're writing for, the people that are in charge of the housing plant and know what repairs need to be done. And they just talk about what they need to say. And you're just there as like a very ardent note taker. And mm-hmm. then you you figure out from that what needs to be in there. And then you just try to figure out a form. And, and then after that, it is sort of like all the writing I do now where it's like, just draft after draft, and people say, no, 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 and then you kind of figure it out. It's a weird sort of intermediary position in the way that I experienced it, yeah.
0: Can we talk about the theater briefly? Because it's sure. a topic I know nothing about. Might be my <laughs> the topic I know the least about. And like, if I read a review of uh, Tenet in The New Yorker, I'm kind mm-hmm. of like, oh, I'm going to go see Tenant, or maybe I already saw Tenet your theater reviews in the New Yorker are far, far, far more influential on my perception of what theater is than actually going <laughs> to see plays. I have no intention of seeing any of the plays, but I, I I do read, I read your writing about it sort of in the same way that I'll sometimes listen to like NFL gambling podcasts, even though I don't watch <laughs> the NFL, it's a kind of indirection. So maybe going from the start, like, what is your relationship to the theater?
2: I, I love theater and, and it's, interestingly, been a part of my life intermittently almost all the way through. So in high school, I was in a lot of plays, largely musicals, even though today musicals are not like the first thing that I run to. Certainly, that was an early part of my sort of artistic, creative experience. In college, I took a lot of playwriting courses, and I had a lot of friends in the theater department. I was one of the worst actors in uh, Chekhov's Cherry Orchard that Ever existed. Um, There are a lot of things like that, that it was kind of always in my life. And there aren't many experiences like going to a theater and coming out and having had a real experience in that live way that you know is not replicable and will never, in some sense, happen again. Um, But that is the problem of it, right? Because it will never happen again. And as to your point, not a lot of people go to shows, right? So The New Yorker has however many subscribers, most of whom don't live in New York, and therefore many of whom won't ever see the show. And so part of what I think of that job as being is like democratizing that experience and in some ways putting on the show for someone who will never see it, right? The show puts out not only the way it looks, the way the colors are up on the stage, the work that the dramaturgs and the designers have done to present it to you, but it also contains all these ideas, right? I think about that a lot, right? That there are people that don't go to theater and I'm in some sense more writing for them than I am for anyone else. I hope that it will have interest for someone who did see the play or somebody who in the sort of like very like consumer oriented way might see the play and want to figure out whether they should or not. But I'm mostly trying to put on the show again and like reiterate and develop the ideas that I got from it for somebody who might never see it.
0: It's interesting you describe what you're doing as democratizing theater. How do you reckon with the fact that theater is sort of essentially anti-democratic in its structure <laughs> and is that something you feel like you need to write about? Like do you need to say, "Hey, like unless you're in New York and you're making pretty good money, you're probably not going to like go see this play or um, I'm curious how that element actually seeps into your writing about theater.
2: Yeah. It's something that I think about a lot. And I honestly, the pandemic has given me occasion to think about this more than ever. Right. Because there are all these people doing digital theater readings over zoom different ways. Right. To present. There's this one great play that came out. It was called circle jerk. Um, And it's just like the craziest, most bizarre just really, truly beautiful experience that would never have been able to come off quite in that way on the stage, right? A truly new formal thing, right? And, you know, it wasn't that expensive. It was less expensive than it might have been in the real world. And still, there are probably people who just would never have looked at it because theater's not their thing because of all the things that you've talked about, all these, like, anti-democratic, like, structural things. So part of my job is to, I think, to champion work that feels to me democratic, right? And and talk about it in terms that might bring people into it. Because there are shows that aren't prohibitively expensive and there are shows that ways to get cheaper tickets. But at this point, it's almost beyond the sheer cost or perceived exclusion. It's like people just don't even think of theater as a thing for them because of that in the past, right? So I am sort of being like evangelical about like, hey, no, 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 this is for you. And if you look at our a culture, who's writing the TV shows, who's writing the screenplays for movies and things like that. It's true that like theater probably has become more influential in ways than it has been in a long time. You know, uh, there are Jeremy O'Harris, right? How long has it been since we've had a like celebrity playwright? In some ways, we're, we're seeing a turn towards it. And I'm just like trying to open the door further and say, hey, a lot of the things that you're looking at have their roots or their sort of ultimate influence in the theater. But then also, you know, I... Recently I wrote something about sort of what it means to be an audience member during the pandemic. But my truest thing was to say also we need to reinvest in theater. Like the country needs to reinvest in the arts generally, but also in theater specifically, right? Like in the New Deal, a lot of that money went toward artists to go around the country and make murals and put on plays and things like this. Like we we need that again. And so Yeah, also directing it toward not only the sort of theatrical establishment in New York and everywhere else, but toward the government to say, you know, you have a part to play in this as well. So the column is a really interesting space where it's like you can do the review of the show and talk about one show at a time. But because it's kind of so open a form. Yeah, sometimes a couple paragraphs can go to like then making this other kind of appeal. Right. So
0: definitely. I was thinking about so you're kind of going where the medium goes, right? There's a pandemic, theater goes online. Okay, you're online. And I'll tell you my subjective and totally uninteresting personal experience, which is like, I love music. I love to listen to music. Uh, Musicians, I very much enjoy. have had live streams and I've just been like, oh, this is so boring. This is very bad. (laughs) This shouldn't be a medium because it's not very good. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious for you as you sort of, move pretty fluidly from theater and to other areas of culture. Like how much does whether you like something or not matter? And how much does it influence both whether you write about it and what you write about it?
2: Yeah. Whether I like something matters, but it's not the only thing, right? Because there are two different kinds of liking or not liking, right? There's like, sometimes something's just not for you. Right. And you don't like it because it's in a different Aesthetic world from the one that you're even trying to be a part of and those are often the things that I don't write about right Because on some level. It doesn't matter whether I like it somebody that it is aimed at is the person that can tell you really What are the points of interest in it, whatever but if I don't like it and it's definitely talking about things that ought to Pertain to me and my interest then yeah, then that's really interesting. Then that's a narrative, right? I care about these issues on and on, and this disappoints those issues on a, whatever, aesthetic level, moral level, whatever, and so to me, that's really interesting, and that's like, on some level, all I care about, but then like, the issue of the pandemic is a whole other one, right, because at the beginning, there were just a bunch of things that were just kind of on Zoom, and people reading the thing, and it's just like, it wasn't good to me, right, and I found my job there to be really subtle, because it's like, I don't like this, but- I shouldn't make a categorical statement about whether that means it's not theater or something, right? Because we often right. get caught up in these formal things of like, well, that's this isn't theater. Now it's something else. And I can't just get lost on, okay, I don't like it or it disappoints me or it makes me want to go to the theater or whatever, some sort of nostalgia, right? Then it becomes my job to say, okay, what can this mean about theater? What new door does this open that, like a new form or a new approach or a new literature that this might bring into being, right? Um so then I'm just like more in, in like investigation mode. And yeah, whether I like it matters but it can't be the final word on something like that when something truly new is happening.
0: Support for long form this week comes from listening the voices sounded totally natural and human to me this listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk free now normally you get a 2 week free trial but listeners of long form get a whole month free go to listening.com/longform or use the code longform at checkout listening your life just got a lot easier You wrote a profile of Tracy Morgan Mm -hmm. and there's a moment in the profile where Tracy Morgan is talking to some other comics about, I think it's about watching Martin Lawrence open for Chris Rock. And he's talking basically about like playing to a black or white audience Mm -hmm. and different comic, different black comics who like play to the audience differently. I'm curious for you, like how aware you are in the theater of the audience that is like at the show with you and their reaction and how this might play to a totally different audience. For me, whenever I have been at the theater, like the four times I was at the theater, I really felt like the energy of who was in the room was part of the energy of the show.
2: Yeah. It's to me, it matters totally because you know, actors don't act in a vacuum. Yeah. Yep. They are picking up on energies and picking up on responses, and it totally matters. And when you're a part of an audience, you are totally explicitly part of the show. And so, of course, you're not only looking at yourself, but, like, who's next to you and what they're doing. And I, as a critic, I'm often... Sometimes I'll just, like, look over my shoulder and see, you know, are people laughing? What are they... You know, what's going on? And because theater audiences are often mostly white and mostly over a certain age. You know, age is part of it. Yeah, you see how that angles the performances. And, you know, and th- that makes you ask questions about, okay, then, and this is what's something that I'm still trying to tutor myself in. Okay, what is the developmental process? And how, do, how does the implied audience, right, the people that subscribe to off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway theaters, how does that change what they say yes to what kind of notes those plays get? And then how can you shake that up a little bit? How is freedom one in the context of that very audience dependent kind of art? So that's sort of one of the frontiers I want to get to is like in terms of knowing that.
0: You described uh, like looking around at other people in the theater and In these different contexts, like you've written about basketball recently, every time I read your writing in those contexts, I go like, wow, he's paying a lot more attention than I am. I watch an (laughs) entire basketball game and I'm like, yeah, I kind of remember a couple plays in the fourth quarter, barely. So I'm interested in what is happening when you're watching something that you're going to write about what's going on in your brain and how are you cataloging and storing things that might appear in an article later?
2: Yeah, sometimes it's just about taking notes and reminding myself, you know, sometimes something awesome will happen in a basketball game, for example, and I'll just write down, like, you know, Russell Westbrook crossover end of first quarter and, like, just try to remember it. And then, you know, the next day on my League Pass app or whatever, I'll, you know, it's usually up there and I can go and rewind it and as many times as possible and describe it really well, right? So the notion that I'm, like, I've got the whole thing as an aesthetic experience in my mind that I'm like transcribing in the moment is a little bit of an artifice, right? I'm like going back, Mm. you know, rewinding over and over again, making sure I've got every emotion right, describing it within an inch of its life, right? But, yeah, I I think the job is just paying a bunch of attention. Sometimes I'll be watching TV with my wife and Renee will be like, you don't look like you like this because I'll just be like squinting and like – darting my head back and forth. And it's not that I don't like it. It's just that I'm like really trying to pick up what it's putting down. You know, that to me is one of my like great joys. It's like if you're a person like me where like thoughts and worries and things like this are intruding on your consciousness all the time, it is a great relief to have something to just over describe and overpay attention to and kind of just give all of your latent, usually anxious attention to this one thing like that to me is a great joy. That's the, the whole point for me.
0: Is it coming to you on a sentence level? Like when you see, you know, uh, you write down like Russell Westbrook washed question mark or something. Are you thinking (laughs) about like how you're going to say that in a story at that point?
2: Sometimes. Sometimes I, you know, sometimes things, you'll think of the sort of base level of the sentence and then sound will take you to a place where, okay, I could see where that needs to be toward the end of that sentence. and, And, you know, sometimes when you think, abstractly, then all of a sudden these like concrete sounds will sort of surround that one like abstract thought. And that's what a sentence is for me. It's like, oh, Mm -hmm. this little somebody, it's like somebody starting to murmur into your ear. And so that happens sometimes. It often happens, unfortunately, like, When I'm going to sleep and it's like the decision of like, do I need to get up and write a little note to myself or like when I'm first waking up, like those sounds make themselves very apparent to me. But often it's just like, I know I need to figure out a way to say that. And I'm just like doing a little placeholder. And then, you know, you open up docs or whatever. And then that starts to work itself out like with time. But yeah, the question is always how to make something equate this visual or whatever experience and turn it into the sound that is a sentence.
0: I want to talk about your profile writing hat, but one more question for the critic hat first, which is most of these things that you're doing as a critic is you're consuming something and you're not talking to anyone about it. So there isn't like a quote from the director of the Mm -hmm. play often in one of your reviews, what are the tools that you found effective to get some of that stuff into your writing without literally being able to put it in someone else's voice? Like how do you bring perspectives into that writing that aren't just sort of, I think, I think, I think.
2: Well, one, one thing is that for me, criticism is one of the freer forms of writing Hmm. So, I mean, I'm just thinking about that. I mean, I guess I could call somebody if I felt that I just wanted to know something that was unknowable other than, you know, by talking to them. But often, you know, I'm writing about this artist and now I'm going to go back and read a bunch of interviews that that artist has done or things that have been written about them. So sometimes you'll, like, stumble on something that they've said before and then you put that in there because you're trying to extend this thematic grid that you're trying to create within the, the column, right? So sometimes that'll be interesting, or you'll find out something about their biography, and then that rhymes with the themes that they're working through in the play. But to me, I think, I think, I think, I think is, on for better or worse, the rhythm of criticism. And, you know, so yeah. on some level, you cannot be afraid of that pattern. You know, you got to say, yeah, sure, I think, I think, I think. Here's a fact, but this fact matters in this context only insofar as it, relates to something that I think, I think, I think. So it always gets back there. And I think critics are people who are comfortable (laughs) with, with really just presenting their opinions as aesthetic objects, right? That's what a column is. It's like, here's a beautiful presentation, hopefully a beautiful presentation of simply what I think.
0: Looking at your writing from before and after you started at the New Yorker, did the voice of your, I think, change when Mm. you started at the New Yorker? It's a, place that's associated with like its own voice like there's a new yorker voice as well as a voice of all the writers you know it's hard to tell and when i
2: look back at my older work i think the differences are more potentially more structural than stylistic or vocal or whatever i still hear myself in all of my work and it's hard to tell also because it just is a temporal fact that my new yorker work has happened after my work in other places and so i view myself as still getting better at writing hopefully and still in what i think of as a kind of apprenticeship moment in my like life i still am really you know just reading 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 trying to get better so you know some of the things that you might chalk up to the new yorker i you could also just chalk up to me trying to get better and figure out new ways to say things but you know getting better at writing it's such an intangible process. I look back at things and I'm like, okay, I'm definitely better than this, but I don't remember how, <laughs> except for we're just writing a lot, you know, how I got better or how I changed my angle, which to me is what I sometimes I'll just like, when I'm lost or I don't know how to sound, I'll just make the font really big because I just feel closer. And it's like, then I can, you know, maybe that's what I need to do is like just be a little bit closer in perspective. And this is creating some sort of illusion, you know. Those angles of approach are the things that I think change the way you
0: think about writing yeah.
2: As, as time goes on.
0: So how did you come to The New Yorker, actually? We, uh, we, yeah. we were writing 400-word uh, reviews for the Brooklyn paper. And then uh, at some point, you started writing for The New Yorker. How, how did that happen? Yeah, I just kept writing in different venues. And it really
2: is a kind of trail of serendipity. But toward the end of 2014, this was when McSweeney's internet tendency, the website, was still doing this column contest. I don't think they do it anymore. But at the end of every year, they would do a contest where people would send in their ideas for a year-long column. And five people would get a column, and they would publish your work for the next year. So at the end of 2014, I, I was one of the winners of that contest. So I got this column. And then so as I'm writing this column for McSweeney's, I also was pitching things to different places, most of which kind of went unanswered or whatever. But I did get to do a really, a piece that I had wanted to do about a Kahinde Wiley exhibition for The All, which was one of my favorite websites and still uh, is very sad to me that it doesn't exist anymore. Um, that piece I'm still very proud of. And after that, I felt something changed. Like after that, the Times Magazine reached out to me, uh, which resulted in a couple of pieces one on the web there, and I did a couple things in print there. And around the same time in 2015, The New Yorker, uh, my editor now actually reached out to me, and then I started doing pieces for them one after another. And then the next year is when I started there full-time. So I had started another job at an NGO also writing speeches. I was writing uh, speeches there. And I'm not sure if I can say their name because I later signed a a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, (laughs) But I um, was working there and then doing, like, these bigger and bigger pieces. And I can sometimes be slow at things. I can be – anxiety has made me not as great as I could be at certain of my, like, real-life jobs. And I wasn't doing – I was a little bit too slow there. And all of a sudden, they'd be like, hey, uh, we read your piece in the Times Magazine. What's up with that? It was just, like, really weird. So – we agreed that I shouldn't work there anymore. (laughs) So for like two months or so, I was just purely freelance. And then The New Yorker took me on full time. So I sort of all of a sudden had this very different life where I was writing full time and no longer freelancing.
0: So it was a really kind of almost jarring transition for me. A lot of features you've written, and maybe this is just a random smattering of the ones I read before this, but (laughs) you seem to gravitate often towards subjects who perceive themselves as having been misunderstood by the media, like Mm -hmm. uh, Stefan Marbury, you, Mm you did a piece with. And I don't know if Tracy Morgan would say he was misunderstood, but a person who has been the subject of negative media scrutiny previously, what attracts you to that? And how does one approach a subject like that? Yeah.
2: You know, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it in that way, but
0: I guess it's true.
2: I think people are at their most interesting, and for me interesting usually just means like full of the most pathos, right? When they're really trying to get themselves across. Yeah. And they're, you know, one of my real interests and also like great horrors is like how we try to communicate just one-to-one. Forget about myself to an audience or to uh, an imagined like public, but just me and you how I can make that transfer, how I can communicate anything about myself, my experience to you, and how often that attempt is a failure. And I think celebrities are people who think about this a lot, right? Who are very aware of their selfhood. And the whole thing is like, how do I make myself come across in the way that I want to? So it's like a total intensification of what I think is like one of the great human problems. And so watching people do that, it endears me to them, which is often what I need at least on some level to write about them, just I understand what you're trying to do and it brings up an emotion in me. one of my favorite people that I've written about is um Sanford Biggers, the artist who is one of my favorite artists and just like he's got this sense of humor that people don't totally always get because it's so sophisticated and so subtle, I think you know, and watching him trying to make that apparent is like why I wanted to write about him that effort is really human to me and and, and so I'm always looking for people that Not that I need to clarify, right? I'm not working as the agent of that clarification. I'm just showing them
0: in the attempt. So there's your perception of what that person is doing, what that person's humor is and what it means. And then there is their own perception about what their humor is doing and what it means. And I often find like you've written a pretty good amount about comedy Mm -hmm. and this is interesting. I was about to say something that I think is bullshit. I was about to say <laughs> comedians don't really like to talk about how jokes work mm-hmm. a lot or don't like to reduce everything to like a methodology or craft. Yeah. I would say that the success of Mark Merritt's podcast might run against um, th- that <laughs> statement. But I've actually just found in general, like a lot of my favorite artists are not great at talking about their own art. right? And so how do you navigate talking to people, not about, you know, where did you grow up, but like, how do you write jokes? What's the meaning of your jokes? (laughs) Well, yeah,
2: I think too, that people often, you know, and whatever you're asking me about my work. And I feel that like, I think it's hard to talk about how you do what you do yeah. because if you knew it, you wouldn't do it. Right. Like the reason why I start every piece that I do is because I'm not sure how it's going to come off. And, you know, that discovery is why I do it. And I think that that Applies to artists of all kinds, right? So when you ask someone what they think they're doing, they often are just like looking at you like, I don't know even what you mean, right? Like, Or they're like totally down to do it. And even as they're telling you it, in your mind, you're thinking, that's not why it's funny. Yeah. You know, like you like to talk about this, but you're actually wrong, you know? Yep. Um, and that's where I think it's interesting to approach. I think I approach all of my profile writing or feature writing or whatever as essentially a critic, you know, because... What can bridge that gap is what I think, and that matters just as much, right? So this is where you get those passages in a profile that feel almost essayistic and can go into the history of that medium or go, you know, you try to trace a thematic line through this person's output, whatever it might be, right? You kind of fill that gap with this other skill, this critical eye that I think, you know, creates a tension in the piece between what the person thinks, what the public might think, and then what you think. I think that is to the good of a profile, because it doesn't want to be stenography of this person's point of view. It's a meeting of that point of view in yours. And that's what makes, like, I think a good profile is one that brings those two things into stark relief.
0: Yeah, I think that profile of Tracy Morgan actually qualifies in that it's actually criticism, not a profile. It's actually kind of a giant review of why Tracy Morgan made the TV show The Last OG, yeah. which you know i i think i've maybe seen one episode of the show and my sort of assumption was he made that show because that was the show that sold to a network or whatever it, (laughs) it takes very seriously the idea that like the last og is almost an auteurist work that like makes sense in the grand universe of tracy morgan you're kind of in a way it feels like a lot of what you're doing is trying to put yourself in the situation where anything they work on might be like the most important thing to them. There's that scene in the in the Tracy Morgan one where he's watching like a 2008 movie and he's like my acting is so good in this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Tell me about putting that together hanging out with someone in those kinds of contexts like there's a lot of scenes in that. It seemed like you must have hung out with him a lot to do that story.
2: Yeah. We, I mean, there are lots of different ways to hang out with somebody <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's like the art of planning out a profile. I find yeah. is like in some ways telling them at the beginning and many like entertainment people with you know actors or whatever, they kind of get this because they've made a movie. So yep. you can kind of almost storyboard it for them. It's like, hey, like one of these times I just need to talk, hang out with you and we talk. And that way we feel in a lot of your biography and we feel in all these things and you tell them why, right? Yep. Justify your presence to them because the worst thing is for them to just get tired of you being around. One time I'm gonna come and I'm gonna be on a movie set. And we'll talk a little bit, but I'm mostly there to be a fly on the wall. And that's right. what the first I'm um, scene in that piece is. Like Me, on set with him, he's talking to me, but I'm watching him do takes of this show, right? I just need to be around. There's a scene that's backstage before he goes on stage at the Beacon in Manhattan. And that was one of those things where it's like, I just want to be there with you. I'm going to be there. I'm going to go into the backstage. I'm not going to say anything. And, you know, on and on, you know, four or five different ways of hanging out that you kind of explain to them and that they can sort of wrap their heads around and that's fine, right? My sense of what it takes to get something greenlit or whatever is that, like, the commercial thing of just, like, hey, this sold, so we're working on it, even though there is the commercial drive on and on, all the constraints that exist in in that world, they use those opportunities one by one in order to get something across. Otherwise, you know, if it's all just cynical, which, hey, I think that's a fair point of view, but if it's all just that, then it's certainly not worth my talking about it, right? Hmm. But that's in some ways another expression of the problem of what it means to write for a magazine, because especially in culture and the arts, usually you're talking to someone when they've got something happening, right? So there's always the danger of just being a branch of public relations for this person, right? Or just sort of a step on a media tour. So just like you are trying to make a kind of art out of that opportunism, You have to imagine that that's what they think of their job as well. Like, okay, I got this TV show. How do I get as much artistry out of this ultimately commercial enterprise, right? So in some ways, I feel sympathetic to them because I feel like I'm in a similar, even though much different and lower level, a similar problem in terms of how I, from piece to piece, get my work done.
0: Do you think about that in choosing stories? Like, I honestly think in booking this show, you know, I do. 13 shows a year. And I could easily fill it with people whose writing I really admire who are going on a book tour to promote a book that's super important (laughs) to them. But also I'm interested in the parts of writing that aren't when you have your biggest book coming out. I'm interested in the low moments, like I didn't, uh, you have a novel coming out as I understand it. I didn't actually know that until seven minutes before this interview when <laughs> I looked you up. I just like your writing. So in thinking about one year in the writing life of Vincent Cunningham, like you're not going to see every play. You're not going to write about everything. What what does your dance card look like and, and how do you construct it?
2: Yeah. I mean, this is part of the benefit of working with an editor. You know, my editor, David Haglund is like, he definitely is one of my best friends because I talk to him more than anybody, right? We, like, go on walks and we just talk about stuff. So it's just, like, finding these points of mutual interest and having just conversations. And then when it seems like there might be an in, a way to talk about something that's just of interest to me, it's like, okay, let's do that, right? So, for example, if we keep talking about Tracy Morgan, I've always been interested in the sort of substream in black comedy that, like, you know, is – Represented by somebody like Red Fox that like what they used to call the party records, these like really dirty sets that would be recorded at you know nightclubs that everybody couldn't come to. And they would just talk about sex and all this like the raunchiest, nastiest thing. And you just imagine the smoke filled room and people would put these things on after their kids went to bed and invite people over to come and laugh at Red Fox's latest show or whatever. Like I was interested in that and thought about Tracy Morgan in connection with that way before – I had an opportunity to write about it. And I talked about that with my editor quite a lot. And so when it was possible to talk to him, we did for that reason because it was already part of this like ongoing conversation really, that I have with my editor. So that's part of it, right? What are the opportunities to talk about things that I care about? And I think that that logic extends itself to what I choose to write about in terms of criticism as well. Maybe it's selfish to say this, but I think of writing magazine pieces as like excuses to write about. It's like, how do I turn this person, this profile, into a reason to write an essay about something that I'm interested in? Same thing with a column. Okay, this play addresses themes that I've already got thoughts about and I already want to kind of extend my thoughts in some ways, see what happens when those ideas and preoccupations meet this object, right? So all do honor and respect for the work for the person I mean, that's the only way that you can write about a person or a work of art is to give it respect and dignity. Um, But always keep that kernel, right, of just like, what does it mean to this set of concerns that I've been carrying around in some cases for my whole life, right? And so that's the way to pattern it, right? You certainly can't write about every play. I and Alexandra Schwartz, my friend and co-critic, we sit down with our two theater editors, so it's four of us, and talk about what's coming out. And then we sort of will claim week by week depending on the plays that are going to be out that week. And then we see a bunch of stuff, and then you just decide to write about one or two, depending on how much space you've got in the column that week. So it's got to be stuff that you can thread together with your own interests, or otherwise, you know, what's the point,
0: right? And does that interest thread therefore kind of include your editor's interest thread? Like if you're interested in something and your editor's like, this is a zero interest for me, (laughs) is it kind of a dead end?
2: No, not at all. No, no, no. I mean, this is what I love about The New Yorker is that at the end of the day, everything is about what the writer wants to do. If it's something that, for example, your editor brings to you and you're not interested in it, then it's, it's over. Nobody ever forces you to do a piece. And if you're interested in it and your editor is like, doesn't really get it, they're just like, okay, go ahead. And then if you can tell that they're just not into it because of whatever reason, that's all the more enticement to make it really interesting, right? It's like, yeah. by the end of this, I'm going to get you to care about this. First, my editor, and you're going to be a proxy for the rest of the people that will read this without necessarily having a pre-existing interest in it. I think everybody at the New Yorker, the editor is, the whole logic of the place is it's only worth doing is if the person writing about it is truly enthusiastic about it.
0: Do you think that Sort of in following that enthusiasm, if we project forward, maybe there's a, this is offensive, but maybe there's a video game section in the New Yorker in 20 years instead <laughs> of a theater section. It's a lot yeah. more people playing video games. And when I sort of imagine current teenagers and what they're up to, it seems like some of these ideas of what culture is will also change. I mean, not that the New Yorker doesn't publish anything about video games, but it seems to be putting more per capita energy into the theater uh, than uh, Fortnite. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I think
2: that is inevitable. And I think it's all to the good, right? It's up to the theater. And in, in this part of the theater, I'll include myself, right? The actors, directors, dramaturgs, and people and critics, people who write about the theater. It's up to this community to continue to make it A thing of interest otherwise it won't be worth writing about right art whether you like this or not art has to justify itself Mm -hmm. in terms of the interest of people who come to see it and so theater will never die because it is i think ancient for a reason it speaks to things in us that in ways that nothing else truly does so it won't die but if it's you know not something that 1.25 1.25 million New Yorker subscribers are interested in it anymore, it won't be there, you know, I imagine that that's true. So I don't want that to happen. So part of why I try to write really well every time is like, this is why you should care about this, right? Simon Parkin, who writes for The New Yorker, has written a lot of things about gaming that I read because I don't I want to know what's going on. Adrian Chen is no longer at The New Yorker, but he, to me, is just whether it's gaming or so many other parts of our online life. I, he's, sometimes I, I read his work and think, like, this is what writing is going to be like. And, you know, he's like, you know, 50 years ahead of his time in terms of the things that he, he cares about, you know. But um, that's all to the good, right? I mean, this is one of the ways that criticism can isn't totally just parasitic on art is like totally co-equal with it, right? Because one of the ways that you create a constituency for art is to write about it really well. So the great video game critic of the future will come along and will write about it so compellingly that people will rush to things and this will change the market for video games and make it, you know, high art in a way that never was before. So I await that great digital critic or whatever. It's going to be great.
0: I actually have the same relationship to video games as I do to NFL gambling and the theater, which is my actual (laughs) enjoyment is reading about it. Like I like when a big game comes out and I like to read a bunch of reviews. And then if I ever actually buy the game, I get frustrated within like five minutes and regret the purchase. But I've actually really enjoyed learning about what's going on in video games uh, from the writing. Yeah, There's a story that um, Jay Kang did in the times magazine a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. which was both a profile of a korean american actor and a essay about the experience of being a korean american writer who was assigned to write a profile of a korean american actor and what goes into that yeah. um you write about black subjects pretty often in the new yorker i wonder Like, just even on an interpersonal level, like, what does it mean that a person gets asked, hey, can you do this New Yorker profile, and then you show up? What are those social interactions like, and how do you think it plays out in your writing? Yeah.
2: First of all, that profile of Stevie is brilliant and beautiful. And, I, you know, Jay is my friend, so it's like I always am feeling biased toward him, but it's just an amazing piece. And I was part of thinking that pieces are good is – beating back your insane jealousy at the person who who made them. So I'm still working on that. Um, (laughs) It is, it's something that I think about and I still haven't totally resolved it. I want to write about things that I'm interested in. And one of the things I'm interested in is black people and the art that they create. And so on some level, that dynamic is always going to be part of my work. Right. But, you know, I will admit that like, especially Earlier in my career, I was very conscious of watching people just get stuck on what looked like a beat. Like they just, we're hiring you and you're going to do black stuff, right? So I've always tried to keep my work as broad as all of my interests, right? So this is why I was grateful to have started off having a job and therefore able to say no a lot to stuff. Part of that is like a way of conditioning editors to be like, I'm not interested in that just because it's a black thing. Like, here's what I'm interested in. Right. And I think that's a constant thing to sort of insist on your interests, not become a sort of constituent of somebody's idea of what a black writer is supposed to be interested in. But yeah, I, I don't want to then willfully not, you know, write about stuff that you're interested in, in order to prove a point about, I don't just have to talk about black things. It's like, no, I'm I really am interested in tracing Morgan. and haven't been, in a, for a long time. So I'm going to do that. That's all I'm trying to represent in my writing is my interest, right? If there's a constituency for my work, if there's somebody that I'm, you know, representing, it's really that.
0: I want to ask about one thing that uh, I don't think I've ever asked about on this show, but you've mentioned it several times and it uh, resonated with me because I also have um, issues with procrastination and anxiety and managing my workload. As you've leveled up as a writer, has that also involved like logistics and like discipline and like systems and stuff like that? Like uh, as someone who described yourself as struggling, like in some of these like job settings, what has writing been like for you as a job a- and what have you learned from that?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's constant. I, I'm always envious Slash like agitated by people that are always like, and then I wake up at six, and then I do this, and then I do that. You know, I when I'm finishing a piece, I then kind of slip into that mode of like, I have to get this done, and I'm running late or I am late or whatever. And then I, but for me, it's always like this thing is working for this piece, this is working for this moment, and then the next thing won't submit itself to that (laughs) rigor, and I have to build a new system of approach. But writing is difficult to conceive of as a job because part of it is like seeing stuff and seeing everything, right? And so sometimes your job is like to like just go to the museum a bunch bunch of different museums that week, or to read a lot, or to watch certain things or, you know, so it only works if you're kind of greasing the wheels of your life. And also, by the way, just reading a ton so that you can stay good at writing, which is my constant fear that that I just will run out of sentence structures or run out of ways to approach things and this like start to sound like an imitation of myself or something. So I'm always like, if you can call what I have a discipline, so much of it is just like reading a lot so that my sense of what is possible by writing is always refreshed. But I don't want to over depend on the word anxiety. All, all I mean by that is my fear that I won't be good, mm-hmm. um, which is very real for me. There's a lot of writing. Yeah. And so it has to be good. And if you you read a lot and you look at the past and you have these people that you admire and you want to make a contribution to something that has nourished you your whole life, it does feel like making that justification with every piece. And that's that feeling, my friends and I, we always talk about it as like, this piece has to go in the collected works of Vincent Cunningham, right? Like, every that that pressure, piece by piece, is not necessarily
0: productive, but it is something that is like, Part of my makeup as a person. I think for me, we're on, I think we're approaching about 500 episodes of this show. Yeah. And the show was very rough early on. Uh, Our early listeners will know, but (laughs) I think I learned a lot from doing something every week for, you know, almost eight or nine years. And you've done columns, which is, kind of a a similar thing it's kind of like if this one's going in the collected works great but if it's not going in the collected works it's still got (laughs) to come out
2: yeah and you know the new yorker is really helpful in that way because it is just relentless it comes out every week and all of a sudden someone will ask you like what do you think about this illustration and then you realize that there's (laughs) It, it's like I'm getting triggered as I say it. You realize that there is a page with your name on it and somebody's made a thing and it's like, you got to fill these spaces, man. Like, get yourself together. You have to fill this page. You know, I I love the how the theater column is always like, you know, the last or second to last page in the magazine. I love occupying that that real estate. And it's like, dude, you have to fill your page. And so, yeah, that's the part that gets you out of your head is like the cold clarity of necessity you know but it's hard it's it's hard to balance that sort of workmanlike necessity with like you know your desire to live up to something and, and meet a standard so that's what my struggle with work has always been it's like you know i want to show up and really make the most out of it every time this has been great um thank you for coming on this has been so great thank you so much
0: And with that, another long form podcast comes to an end. Thank you very much to Vincent Cunningham. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Susan Peterson, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, and of course, MailChimp for making this show possible. We'll be back next week. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.
1: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it.